Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with doctors, developers, and decision makers that are playing in the Australian health tech scene today. With me today is David Dunn. David's a super-driven, motivated, and dedicated individual with a bunch of qualifications and experience and a pretty amazing life story. He's currently CEO and founder of Health and Life, the CEO of One Moment Foundation, and he's actively involved in industry associations across medical and accounting professions. David's passionate about creating a sustainable and socially responsible healthcare system by promoting health and financial literacy in the community. David, how are you doing? Good, Peter. Thanks for having me on board. Thank you for coming along. You're uh, all the way over in, in Adelaide, an, an Adelaidarian, is that what it's called? Ad- Adelarian? What's the... Adelaidean. Oh, right. We're not that far away. <laughs> <laughs> it's bigger for me to get to Sydney than it is to you know, catch a taxi where you live. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so that's true. That is true. Not that far. That is true. Everywhere's 15 minutes away. Yeah. But 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 everyone no, no one travels when it no one goes to shops when it rains in Adelaide. That's what I learned. Like if if you if you own a retail store and it rains, you you like no one comes yeah, to the shop. Yeah, we are particular. Yeah. We are particular. Yeah, I'm not sure why. Hey, look, <laughs> thanks thanks for coming on the show. Look, it would be great to jump into a few different things and and I think I've seen some of your work mainly online and in a, in other kind of publicity so it's great it'd be great to to delve a little bit more into it but look I mean I, I don't know how you how you start with this one you you do a bunch of different things you've got a lot of qualifications what what exactly do you do all day with that kind of history and insight David I guess for me this has been a bit of a long game you know my background I was used to be a corporate auditor at KPMG at the time, the bank collapsed and it was a bit calamitous back then. Um, a lot of confidence lost in the accounting profession. And, you know, it was a recession we had to have. They were pretty heady times. Um, and I had an unfortunate car accident, which I'm happy to elaborate to at the time I was working there. And I just worked out at the end of the day, there's no point in being the richest guy in the grave. And, you know, I need to do something a bit more useful and more meaningful than moving people's money around and all that. That's not actually terribly difficult or hard. And I guess more for fulfilling from a personal point of view. So to, to get into health and life to s- establish it, you know, came from more of a personal cause. Um, I had a lot of questions about the kind of care I was receiving and how I navigated the system as a patient. And so this has been very much a long game, not it just happened that way. And while I thought everybody had the answer to something wasn't quite so, and I spent a long time patiently listening, publicly debating and sourcing responses to any ideas on this journey that I'm in, and I guess I'm in my third decade. So, you know, I probably spent the first decade listening, the second de- decade implementing, and the third decade saying, look, it looks like we're struggling a bit here. I need to give it a bit of a nudge along in terms of, you know, the various leaders that are out there in the, in the healthcare space. And social media has just been a, a fantastic way to test your ideas and um, a, and a safe way to, you know, attract your critics and supporters alike, which is critical. And in fact, my critics are my best supporters, and and I like it that way. Not to be controversial, I kind of get a bit annoyed when people say I'm staring. I'm going, these are real issues, and we've got real problems that we need to solve. And people's lives are being affected by this. So I'm passionate because I really do care about the community. I want Australia to succeed. I want our kids to be able to stay in this country and have you know useful and meaningful jobs. And this is one way through it. And healthcare industry is probably the most constructive and positive way you can do it. And every government. It's tackling many of the problems that we are at the moment around the world. So I can't see there's going to be a shortage of work or ideas that people from all walks of life can contribute to. Mm. And I just want to help facilitate that mm. if I can. Tell us 
Tell us a bit more about the why. Like your story, you mentioned a car accident, and and why why is it you chose this that you're passionate about? Well, I, I guess you know people ask me, so you know, who are you, an entrepreneur? What are you? And I go, well, some people say a businessman, and I guess the old doctor says it to sort of you know. Uh, put people in their boxes and so you don't have to listen to somebody which is mm. cute but i'm not sure it's terribly helpful for the rest of us to understand them i guess what i call myself i mean i'm into social justice and i see myself more as a social entrepreneur and people say well, why well i did have a car accident at 5 30 in the morning you know when i was a graduate and i had uh, crashed my car on a tuesday night you know i'd fallen asleep at the wheel i hit a tree had about nine operations the engine was at the back seat i happened to just bought you know, the family car, which happened to be a Volvo, and I was lucky to be alive. Mm. Um, but the nine operations straight away gave me the patient experience. And I thought, well, you know, even though I come from a family of doctors and medicos and specialists in the public system as much as the private, and even though they, they trained half the, you know, med school here in South Australia, I found it difficult to navigate still. And I just wondered, if I can't navigate it, what chances have the rest of us got in doing that? And I just didn't feel that was the right way of all of us live life, I mean, that's the place where you need to feel the safest. Mm. No, that's right. And look, I've, I've heard you describe yourself as a patient advocate. What does that actually mean to you and what does that involve? I, I guess that we've sort of embodied this into, you know, our accounting practice ethos at Health and Life. And we run what's got a triple bottom line. There's nothing that I'll do if it compromises community expectations client expectations and ourselves. I mean, this is quite critical. I mean, I see too many people with fast money, fast ideas that don't work. They probably take advantage of the disadvantage and that just doesn't work. And ultimately, when we're helping our practices and our clients, we know we're helping out the community. I know it sits with me that if I say to a client, look, you need to consider increasing the fees so mum and dad can no longer afford, you know, for little Johnny or or Jill to get their immunisation, that that is going to have an impact on their care. I take that very personally, and it doesn't matter. We've got clients all around Australia. It plays very heavy on my mind. So I guess being a patient advocate, I everything that we do and I do and everything I put out there, ultimately I see the end user being the patient, and if we keep the patient happy, the practitioners are happy, practice is happy, and everybody wins. So that triple bottom line is really critical. So everything we do, I always see the patient as the end point, are they going to get high quality care that's sustainable and affordable? Mm -hmm. So your clients are probably the doctors and clinics, is that right? Yeah, look, they're, they're, they're medical practices. So they can be, you know, um, a solo owner that might have two or three doctors, but a lot of ambition to have 10. Mm -hmm. um, we've had startups and then we've got the big large group practices where you'd have you know, 60 to 70 doctors hanging off a group and multi-sites. Yeah. They're metropolitan, they're rural, and I've also done emergency hospital departments at our major public hospitals. I've also worked for the Commonwealth Government on what are called the National Primary Care Collaboratives, looking at the financial sustainability of general practice through Flinders University. And yes, and I've worked for the odd farmer back in my early days. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've worked across all areas from, you know, primary to tertiary care. Mm. So I've seen a broad cross-section of how the healthcare system works from different angles. And, and so when it comes to technology then for, for all those different types of players in the, the healthcare space. How important is the role that technology plays in uh, in the lives of the, of your clients? And and how do you get involved with that kind of stuff? Do you, do you offer solutions or do you have recommendations or? Yeah, look, when it comes to healthcare, everybody wants to offer what's called a Taj Mahal service. Um, mm. It's just that nobody can seem to afford to pay for it. <laughs> and 
what tends to happen is doctors can get themselves into a lot of trouble trying to do that. They either burn themselves out or they overcapitalize on their resources and it gets them into a lot of financial troubles. And they don't know how to sometimes draw the line between giving too much to the patients and meeting their expectations. And it's almost like, yeah, the patient survives but the practice dies. Now, technology mm. has come, I mean, I wish I was your age when this technology came of age because I'm only doing now what I wanted to do. In fact, I started when I was 22. Um, and we're running a national practice. You know, only now has technology been able to do things that most consider impossible. You needed big, you know, corporate back offices. Now it's really cost-effective and easy with technology. And that's from, and one of the two areas I really push hard with my staff and my clients is, look, it's really important to be financially literate and also, you know, to help your patients become health literate. You need both. Mm. And and then and, and the problem, and, and technology has come about and we just want to, you know, a zero award, <laughs> national award for being community partner of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of the stuff we're doing is really playing in that particular space that fortunately or unfortunately, I've noticed that when you want significant change in healthcare, it's driven by the bottom line. Right. Um, accountants pretty much drive what happens. It's not lawyers. It's not all these other different things I thought that mattered. Uh, and I say that with a sense of sadness, not with a sense of, oh, wow, this is great, we're influential, but it is driven by treasury. It is driven by what people are prepared to pay or not. And and so it is quite critical that people have a really strong appreciation about what is running a sustainable practice means in terms of providing high quality and sustainable delivery of services. And where technology really works is that it empowers the practices to do that really well and on a timely basis, almost instant. So, you know, we do provide services where we've tried to create what are called financial literacy tools. So they do have the resources to provide quality care and we have a program called Doctors Pay Calculator that works out what's the right service fee and whether it's viable or not, as well as does the tax invoices and the basic extract summaries yeah, right. and income tax returns for the for the practice because that takes up a lot of time and nobody's really done that. It's a chartered account and registered tax agent. You know, you do need to have a skill set to program the computers to do that. It's just not a spreadsheet or it's not a software program that looks like it can do something. It's actually something that works and it's functional. Um, and I found that that seems to be a real big issue because pretty much I would say the overall overwhelming majority of practitioners are paid on a percentage of gross fees. Yeah. So, you know, charging a 2% or 3% more is a difference um, between running a viable practice and not running a viable practice. And, and what I do notice that financial literacy is, so lo- literacy is so low and everybody seems to be so desperate to get the doctor that really what they're doing is by taking on that practitioner whose expectations pretty much more, well, I guess we question the foundations of it, tend to be more emotional than they are you know, evidence-based. This kind of creates more rational and sensible dialogue. And I think that's important. And we do another thing called practice financial benchmarking. This is, we've been doing this the last few months with our clients with enormous amount of success. Is now we're getting live full-time equivalent industry averages of revenue expenses per month in a practice. So really, you don't have to wait until 12 months or 18 months to see how you're going. Yeah. You can pretty much see a trend curve and you can say, oh, wow, it's getting to Christmas, it's getting quieter, this is the time we should recall patients. And then you can put all the necessary cloud-based software solutions, which are fairly, really good. And, you know, you can SMS, text and, and call people in at those times where you're a bit quieter and online appointments. So mm-hmm. the whole point is, what I see is that when you can show people Look, financially, I'm doing better or worse. And as much as everybody likes to deny that it's not about money, everybody, you know, behind closed doors, I feel like I'm the priest and there's a lot of confessions going on. Money does matter and it does influence the outcome. And um, it is very hard for practitioners to understand their finances. I also think, I think accountants actually find it hard to explain them because they've got 
trust structures and income goes in one place goes in another yeah. that it's you know you really you have to go to a fair bit of trouble to build the tools to make it really easy like a dashboard for them to get it so technology today has made that easy and simple and instant and it's now 24 7 available which if you'd asked me even five years ago i couldn't have done it nobody could have done it hmm. so technology i think is a big game changer it, it creates this financial urgency in people's mindsets as much as it can be preventative and it helps actually drive better decision making when it comes to provision of sustainable clinical services. Yeah, that's really interesting. As a fellow numbers guy playing in the healthcare space, I can give you a, a ream of answers to this question already, but I'm going to open the mic to you. So what, for, in your experience, what can doctors learn from accountants? Well, like I said, financial literacy is the first one. You know, it's well worth spending the time uh, sitting down with your accountant and saying, what are the key three numbers I need to know? And, you know, it's not just how much cash is in your bank account because that doesn't really mean anything. Mm. And and I think th- that I find that once they do that, they do tend to become better decision makers and more considered and they make better um, decisions. One thing that doctors may or may not appreciate that accountants do more than just put numbers in spreadsheets, it's actually evidence-based, which is something that is a mantra that I hear all the time from the professions. Accounting is a very, very strict discipline and it's a powerful tool that is most underestimated in practice. You know, they tend to make decisions, oh, I've got a gross tenor of X, I must be doing well. But, you know, their overheads could be, you know, 100%. Sure. And they're subsidising everybody else. And they think bums on seats makes you successful and it's not. And they can get into a lot of financial distress. Um, and they, they make poor decisions and they become stressed. Whereas if you understood your numbers before you started and know how to monitor them, it's actually a very empowering process and it's not that complicated if you get a good account that can set it up for you. Hmm. And the, the, the point is what the accounting profession has done is take a complex range of data information and data sets and actually summarise it in a way so they've dumbed it down that you don't need to be a chartered accountant to understand your bank account. Yes. So even a person who's homeless knows that if they need $5 for a cup of coffee, <laughs> that, you know what, they're going to have to either, you know, ask for more money and work harder to get more money or change your lifestyle expectations or get some advice. Healthcare information should be that easy to understand. And it can be, is what I'm saying today, which people have never thought of before. Because the accounting profession have been doing it for 40 years and you take it for granted. And mm. you didn't need any special laws to define what an asset is, what a liability is. We all do it. They teach us at university, whether it's here in Adelaide or in Dubai. Mm. We're all on the same page. Um, that does not exist in any other profession in the world. Mm. And that's what makes us unique. And there's a lot that the healthcare profession, when they look at how other professions do actually work at a globally, at a global level, we all commonly agree on these things, which is why we have global banking. And that's why we can do business around the world. So that's a really significant opportunity if people just pivot and think they're thinking, saying, hang on, there is probably something we can do. We have a very good structure, a conceptual framework in terms of collecting, counting information that can be easily adapted into the healthcare industry that just currently doesn't exist. They don't even know why they collect healthcare information in the healthcare industry. They don't know, are they collecting just for the patient, for the provider, are they collecting for regulators, are they collecting for population health? These are really fundamental questions that are absent when I've looked at the literature around the world and I've been just to an international conference in Adelaide only last week. These questions, which are just what I call first principle, you know, things that we learnt in Counting 101 at uni, are not even being asked, yet we're spending lots of money, VC capital, you know, building what I call more anecdotal solutions, but we haven't even defined the problem yet. And that's quite uh, risky. And that's why I probably don't put so much money into that area. 
because I'm saying until we learn how to walk first, we don't start running as much as that looks really impressive. Mm. So I think I would actually say the accounting profession has learned these lessons and they've gone to a lot of trouble to deep dive on, you know, why do we have accounting information? You know, how should it look? And then getting it to all the software people, getting it to all the end users and saying, does this work? So yeah, there's a lot we can bring to that table that is not reinventing the wheel and it's just a simple pivot of thinking. Mm. Tell us a bit more about the, and I think this leads on to the healthcare standards and ethics boards that you're, that you've kind of been championing. It's a, it's a, it's a bold idea, I think, but it, it sounds simple yet bold. I'm not sure. Tell me a bit more about that. So, so provide me some clarity around, around what you're thinking there. Okay. Well, when I've been trying to solve this healthcare problem, this came out of Medicare audits that I'd seen um, practitioners being subject to. I have raised a question in Parliament actually in 2011 is, don't you have tax rulings? In fact, you'll find me cited in the actual Parliament in 2011 because we ran a, a Senate inquiry into the government on Medicare audits. So you'll find me cited in there. And I was just quite surprised and shocked when I said, look, you haven't got any commonly agreed standards. And they said it was impossible. And I said, well, then how do you prosecute people doing the wrong thing if nobody agrees and it's not open and transparent? What is the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. I was staggered, actually, and there was MDOs, there were very big leading professional bodies there, and I was just horrified. And so, you know, if you don't know what the road rules are and what 60K, whether you're breaking the rule or not, if you don't have the advertising saying anything beyond 68K will get you a fine, how do you prosecute people? Ironically, I saw the similar problem going on with APRA when doctors get notifications that, you know, when I ask them what constitutes peer review and it's kind of like two or three people in a room and it might be their competitor or something and it wasn't really open and transparent and I was quite shocked. And, and I don't own a medical practice. I have no intention to, but I, I just feel that the rules aren't open and transparent and they should be because that would be a more useful and less litigious way of solving a problem and people wouldn't feel like everything was done behind closed doors, which has been a, you know, a bit of a concern of mine. And, and I was actually told, well, you know, David, it's impossible. And in fact, it's, you know, the Medicare chairman, you know, who's a doctor who made that call and said, oh, this is just impossible to do it. Mm. And I said, well, I, I can't understand why it's impossible. I mean, we actually have commonly agreed weather standards that came from Ontario, from the aviation industry, so planes could land everywhere in the world. Mm. Why can't we do it in health? Mm. So I just found the responses quite extraordinary. And then when I actually kind of raise these issues, um, actually a doctor that we probably do know and your listeners do know, his name's Charlie Teo. His mm. organisation tapped me on the shoulder, mm. he's a famous neurosurgeon, and said, look, you know, there's medical bullying and everything else going on. And, you know, he said, come up with a solution. So in 2016, I put my mind to it and I actually had a PhD student who actually done about 25 international papers in, in cancer research who decided to go into accounting. And she goes, my God, you guys have got it all together. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you accountants, you have standards, conceptual frameworks, and they're all globally agreed. And you have professional bodies, international ones, that make sure all the regional ones around the world are doing the same thing. Mm. That's amazing. And that bang, I kind of, you know, I'm not a genius. And I thought, wow, actually, why can't that be done in the healthcare industry? And the answer is no reason why it can't be done. So your Fitbit devices are designed in such a way it's interoperable, that the data can be easily exchanged, that, you know, it uses the same 16-bit, you know, patient ID number. It can use that same programming to maybe talk to a medical health record mm. that just simply doesn't happen in this no. and it's unbelievable but it, that's just the way it is mm. so this is why there's silos of information that's going on because there's no agreed standards on how we do what we do there's not even a question of why we collect the information so therefore it's not being systemically collected in a useful and meaningful way like it happens in the accounting profession 
Yeah. And again, professionals have these concepts that can make that happen. So that's why I said, look, we need to come up with an international healthcare standards and ethics board because not everything is based on evidence. Euthanasia is a case in point. There's ethical issues and community expectations. Yeah. And, and those ethics need to be embodied in the, what's called the doctor-patient consultation process. And the only way you can give true guidance is to have an international healthcare standards ethics board, and we said in 190 countries by 2030, so then it can collectively pull this information together like a Wikipedia and have that information automatically um, infused into computer programs. That's what happens in the accounting industry. You know, all our standards are actually going to the zero and the MYOB programs. So doctors don't have more red tape. It's just a natural part of their consultation process and it works seamlessly. So that's the real opportunity. And I know we can lead this here from Australia. And in fact, a lot of good work's done here at the Joanna Briggs Institute in Adelaide, ironically. And, and we are major international players here. But they talk about guidelines, not standards, which is very different. And what we're talking is by going back and going back to asking the why and bringing those guidelines into standards where you're getting good patient outcomes and it's sustainable. Because increasingly what the governments are asking for is we need sustainable healthcare solutions that are evidence-based and also meet community values. And this is where the International Healthcare Standards and Ethics Board can actually host and facilitate all the different groups and divergent groups onto one page. So that's what we're going to be doing next year. I mean, it's I I am excited by the how much you've taken on, but I also am very conscious of just generally the medical. Like I I, I could hazard a guess as what the medical professions kind of take on it is depending on who you are. I, I guess, like you say, you've been approached by doctors that and, and reputable doctors that say that this is necessary. I can also hear many others that were, and you've probably heard many feedback directly to you as well about you know that it's that like you say it is just way too hard so i'm fascinated to follow how this all kind of progresses but i think though like i I look at i look at that comparison of say accounting and and medical and and i can see how you know the, the application of the like particularly in the accounting world it was necessary that like globally that we we had to have a a recession to have these kinds of, you know, tightening of kind of standards and everything and, and, and a global financial crisis to make this happen, I should say. You know, I, I guess uh, when I think of, say, other other professions, though, like the legal industry, I mean, the legal industry, as far as I'm, I'm not a lawyer, I, I like to think that I am I'm clever, but I'm, I'm not that clever. I mean, the legal profession doesn't have like international standards. So, so, so why, why does healthcare need it? I mean, law has common law and case law in Australia and then they need to be interpreted by lawyers and, and judges because every case is a little bit different and it's you, you can't look up necessarily what it is and be black and white on, on what it is, what it might be, say, with numbers. I mean, and that's just Australia. Then you've got all the different other types of laws around the world that then need to be taken into consideration which get all difficult. I mean, how... I almost see health and law being kind of similar in that sense. What so? Why don't we have a an ILSEB or whatever it would be? Like, why do we need a health one? Okay, well, to start, why do you need anything at all? Do we need a crisis? What we don't realise is a silent epidemic already happening in this country and and around the world. The third biggest killer of human life is healthcare and medical error. Yeah, right. It's costing us eighteen thousand lives a year. And there's over 150,000 patients that are injured because mm. of it. Mm. Now, when you compare that, and I'm not saying that, you know, this is a more nobler cause, but suicide rates are about 2,400 per annum um, in Australia and road accidents are 1,200, but we hear more about road accidents and we hear about this other stuff that is preventable. Sure. 
So it's costing us about 20 billion. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry. Here in Australia, we spend 170 billion in a year and it goes up by 10 billion a year. And we don't even know half the stuff we're doing is efficient and effective. And in fact, this conference that I went to on international standards and you know, international guidelines, um, and this is clinical guidelines in Australia last week, the end keynote speaker said that, you know, only 60% of what is done there in clinical practice is even effective. Hmm. Uh, and that's an enormous waste of resources <laughs> that need to be looked at. Yeah. And there is a real economic argument unless you like paying more taxes. It's just a black hole at the moment. Mm. I mean, there's got to be a much more efficient, effective way. And I think that's the new opportunity. That's where the next trillion will be made because this needs to be organised better than what it currently is. And, you know, when you say, does the legal profession need it? I mean, basically, the legal profession is driven by countries and the countries have their own constitutions and it's more a sovereign issue. It's mm. not a global issue. Mm. And when it comes to legal issues per se, I mean, you know, if I'm here in Adelaide, I'm going to go and fly to Dubai. I'm going to fly to America. I'm still the same person that I was in Adelaide. Yeah. My healthcare needs haven't changed. Mm. Um, and, and, and I'd like to feel safer in those countries and I'd like to feel safe that those particular providers are all on the same page, right? Yeah. Yeah. And because things can go terribly wrong with the wrong injection or the wrong treatment because, you know, I didn't have the right records. And, and, and these things have already been invented and done. Look at zero. Zero, zero is a... You know, if you really look at it, it's electronic accounting record that, you know, a particular client can take anywhere in the world with them and it stays with the client, mm. not with the practitioner. The, the technology has already been developed. It's been done. Who knows? It could be zero health around the corner. <laughs> um, so <laughs> yeah. it doesn't need more money. It just needs a, a proper vision yeah. and, and it needs that execution. And the main problem with the law that people do often mistaken it for it's not a justice system, it's a legal system. I mean, mm. you can't legislate good behaviour. Mm. It doesn't address things like the gaps, what I call them, like euthanasia. These are based on community expectation. And you can't write laws for everything. Mm. So, you know, there is an element there that what we need to do is bring the patient and provider closer to the shared, what's called shared decision making and with their families. And you can't do that by law. Otherwise, I could legislate cancer doesn't exist. And in fact, there are cases where we're having parliamentary debates. I mean, we, you know, and it's costing us in the millions. There was one just only last year, or 2018, on Lyme's disease, and they had all these politicians deciding that, well, we'll call it tick-borne, not Lyme. Mm. Why is that being debated in parliament? Mm, yeah, it's yeah, like saying, yeah. well, why do we need to call it cancer? Let's get rid of cancer and call it something else. Mm. It seems absurd to watch. I, I kind of feel slightly incensed as a taxpayer thinking, is this where all my money's going? <laughs> it should be out there with the foot soldiers. It should be in laboratories and, mm. and then doctors who have the appropriate qualifications. Healthcare is not something to be politicised. Yeah. And people, as a result, are not getting access to healthcare for the wrong reasons. And, and that's got to change. And I don't think it needs a lot of money, to be quite honest. The international guidelines that are done by Cochrane Review, that they do 7,500, you know, their annual funding is like 12 million a year. Right. And with 14 researchers, yet it's the most powerful one. This actually doesn't take a lot of money. And the funding with the accounting profession came from the members who part of their money, like two bucks or $4, went to the national body, and the national body split that to the international body. And it reduces medical litigation. It actually has reduced the number of times that, you know, accountants are in call with their clients because there's a cheap and cost-effective way to mediate these issues that are what I call the grey areas. So I just think there's a better way. There is a business case. And, yeah, we do have universities and very prominent ones that are backing us because it's the only sensible way to move forward because healthcare resources are finite. We just can't keep doing what we're doing at the moment 
yes, you're right. The only crisis we're going to have is more people getting the paper. And we've got a Royal Commission into Mental Health at the moment. We've got a Royal Commission into Aged Care. Mm. And, you know, it's just simply not working. One in disabilities. And the more this comes out, the more it becomes open and transparent. These problems are just too big for government. The government takes a more facilitative role. And there's a lot to be said for self-regulation that the accounting profession has solved a lot of its own problems, and particularly with the public on its own, particularly when I came out of those corporate crashes in the 80s, that we don't hear about them as much today. That's where self-regulation can work. And what we need to do is over, there's a bit of an overcorrection going on. We need to bring that pendulum back into the middle. So it can work. And the more we can get the message out. And the only real problem, you're right, is people say, I haven't got time to listen or it's all yes. too hard and they're very dismissive. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest danger we have, that we no longer engage in public debate. And if you can't get your message out in 140 characters, and this is a complex debate, hmm. um, we just shut that person down or we just say, well, that person's a business person or that person doesn't know. Oh, look, I'm really good at I'm really experienced at what I do. I don't need anybody to tell me or I don't right. understand it or it's not my job. And I think we make too many excuses on such an important thing. And the solution really is to raise those issues and make this sort of video or the podcast available to those leaders who are actually responsible for this to make change. So simply sharing a, you know, this sort of discussion is really part of this particular process. And I think it's more than doable because there's a great need. And if you want to get into government, there's only three reasons why you get elected. One is the economy, mm. two is education, and three is health. And most people don't want it because either spending too much or not enough. If you walk in with a solution that actually makes that happen, I can guarantee you be the next Prime Minister or you be the next President of America. Because people and governments in particular take a lot of joy and bragging rights saying that we look after the sick and the injured better than anyone else. Yeah. So there's a lot of political kudos in here and I've actually been invited to present this particular solution in November 20. Senator Sterling Griff has invited me to send out invitations to key stakeholders, including politicians, to actually formally present this. So it does have a very high level of backing from people who work for the NMHRC, current chairs, and, and I think that's the main thing. And I know kudos to them for actually listening and saying, hey, look, humble little account, we can come up with an idea and you know what, we can listen for a change. Yeah. So yeah, I'm probably a bit more optimistic. <laughs> Mind you, it's, I know it's not easy, but I'm, I'm optimistic that you know we are cutting through. And next year you'll see a lot more of that and hopefully professional organisations, we've been getting private letters of support that have gone public, but now organisational letters of support are coming through as we speak. So yeah, we'll need to watch this space. I mean, there's no guarantees it won't work, but then maybe you said you could get to the moon. The Oxford Dictionary started this way back in the 1900s and they said it was impossible. I think anything's possible if you imagine it and you have the right people who share the same vision and I think that's what is really important moving forward. Wow. I'm really excited about watching it progress, particularly over the, the, the coming years. You mentioned you've got a, a bit of a, a longer time frame for a, a target in mind. How, how can people watch what's going on or what should we look out for in the, the coming months or years as, okay, as well, progress on the path? Yeah, well, we're about to launch a website um, called iceb.org um, now early next year. And that's where we'll put updates and feeds. And I've got a number of universities helping me out, Carnegie Mellon University and the University of South Australia and Adelaide University in terms of um, getting that all up and running. So there will be a constant log there and update coming up there. Um, my LinkedIn feeds and Facebook feeds um, give patients a fair go on Facebook. And, uh, you know, the main thing is just get connected and you'll be part of that feedback loop. And if you want to email me directly at pa at healthandlife.com.au, we'll put you on that feedback loop. And if you can't help, the best way people can help, it's not really money we need, it's just sharing these stories around and saying what's doable and 
you might not be able to help me, but you might know somebody who is interested. And in fact, the big thing that we're really wanting to do is get what's called consumer engagement. So it's not so much the professional bodies I'm so much concerned about. It's, there's a lot of consumers out there that are hurting. They want to be heard. Uh, these Royal Commissions are that story, but we need to start talking solutions now, not just problems. And so I believe there's a big volunteer workforce um, out there and, and Carnegie kind of Mellon helping me pull that together, even people from the Australia Day Council, um, to get what's called a public narrative up and running. Because at the end of the day, if I can't get Australia to back it, I'm going to be looking a bit stupid trying to take it to the rest of the world. So I've got to first get the locals convinced. So that's really what my main objective in the next 12 months is. So, yeah, watch this space. And, you know, and that's why we're probably tackling the media in any way we can to... Um, yeah, try and get five seconds of anyone's attention to maybe consider what else can be done out there. And there's huge opportunities for business, investors. Mm. But you know what? You want to back, you want to back the projects that are going to be sustainable in the long term and are the game changers. And until the system is designed properly, you know, I can understand why a lot of people are keeping their cash on the sidelines mm. and rightly so. Mm. David, it's I, I agree with you. It, it's all about getting the message out and, and thinking big. And I can't think of any bigger idea off the top of my head. And I do wish you all the best in, in that journey. And I'm sure there's many involved with the podcast that will either have thoughts on the matter or be able to assist in some way. So I'll put some notes in the show notes on, on how people can, can get in touch or keep a watch. Thanks so much for your time, mate. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All the best. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Go do some stuff on our socials and website, share it with some people, and give us a nice review and a five-star rating because it all helps to spread the word and get people talking. Until next time, I'm out of here.